Welcome to the University of Young Entrepreneurs. My name is Brandon Adams, lifestyle entrepreneur and inventor, passionate about helping others with creating something great and becoming unforgettable. Each week we discuss helpful tips on becoming a successful entrepreneur and interview other entrepreneurs and inspirational people. Our goal is to help take your business and lifestyle to the next level. Now let's get started. Welcome back to the University of Young Entrepreneurs. On today's show, we have Noah McNeely. Noah is a founder and CEO of a product development company called Slingshot Product Development Group. I met Noah back in 2012. We were on the pilot run of a TV show called America's Got Money. From there, I actually partnered with Noah and his company. They helped me develop Arctic Stick all the way to where it is today with manufacturing and about to launch on the market. Noah talks about how they started their company and went from a few people sitting around a table developing products to the powerhouse they are today, a company that launches products into the market. In this show, he talks about some of the products they have developed, one of them being a power tool, all the way up to a grenade, a non-lethal grenade that they use in the Army, which is pretty sweet. They talk about how that was made. He goes and talks about licensing, pros and cons of manufacturing overseas, and then also in the States. And then he gives his take on what he thinks crowdfunding is and what it's going to be in the future. There's so much more in this. It's going to be an awesome show. Noah has a lot of experience. Him and his company have worked on over a thousand projects in the past 15 years, and they have seen it all. You're going to learn a lot in this show. But before we get started, I want to do a shout out to our sponsor, Arctic Stick. Arctic Stick is a new innovative product that both cools and flavors your bottle of beverage. I love using it when I go to the gym. I went to the gym this morning. It allows me to keep my drink cold throughout the whole workout. Not only that, I can put my energy supplements inside. I can use it as a shooter, pop the top, take a shot, or twist and drop in. It'll turn my water into an energy drink. Now, you guys can get your Arctic Sticks by going to ArcticStick.com. That's www.arcticstick.com. And now, it's time for the show with Noah McNeely. Welcome to the University of Young Entrepreneurs. My name is Brandon Adams, and in this episode, we have Noah McNeely. Noah, how's it going, bud? Doing good. Noah and I have a background. We met here about three, was it two, three years ago? Yeah, I think it was uh, 2012 or so. Yeah, 2012. is actually graduated from college. It was August 1st, I, I do remember. We were on the trial run of a pilot run of a TV show called America's Got Money, and I had to give my pitch for Arctic Stick to him and four or five others. And all I had for a product at the time was a, a sprayed uh, sprayed paint cigar tube that was intentionally to look like my product. <laughs> and uh, anyways, so it was a good experience. I met Noah, and from there, we've worked in Arctic Stick throughout the whole process. We've learned a lot. He's uh, mentored me, and uh, it's amazing what they do to turn a product into something tangible, something real. But today, we're going to talk about Noah. He's going to tell us his background and got a lot of good questions for anybody out there that's looking to learn about product development or if you have an idea how you can even take it to the next level. So Noah, tell me tell me about your background and tell me how it led you to where you are today. <laughs> well, I'm um, not sure that, that my background's all that uh, unique or interesting. I had a fairly typical childhood. I grew up in a relatively small town. Um, really didn't know what was available to me until I got to college. Uh, frankly, um, went to Georgia Tech, uh, studied mechanical engineering just because that's one of the main things you study at Georgia Tech. Didn't go into college deciding to be a product developer or an, or, um, an inventor or someone that launches products into the market. Uh, studied mechanical engineering, looked at a variety of different types of industries, really went through the process of completing my degree. Uh, still didn't really know what I wanted to do. I worked for General Electric in their plastics division as a uh, student employee for a period of time. Uh, learned a lot of things about business there. Uh, about that time, uh, I met some other students that were studying uh, industrial design, which was 
a field I had never heard of. Uh, industrial design is, is more the artistic side of engineering, more the artistic side of product development. It was really interesting to me. So I went back to school after I completed my first degree, got a master's degree in industrial design, became a, a more diverse uh, individual in that way. So now I could do the technical side of, of, of things. I could also do the artistic side of things. And it was a good combination for me. From there, um, I met a gentleman named Sam Zaidspinner who was starting a new firm called Slingshot Product Development Group. I partnered up with him and we, we started the company in 2001. Um, the fact that I was uh, a more diverse individual, could, could play the engineer role, could play the design role, was a real asset early on as we, we started the company and, and two of us sitting around a card table was, was all Slingshot yeah. was for the first uh, Like first most startups. Exactly. We we're, were uh, two people, a card table, a computer. Um, and uh, and uh, one office, and uh, I remember there used to be a a commercial where um, where uh, someone bursts into a room and says, "The clients here, I need the pen," because their 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 startup was so small they only had one pen. <laughs> and uh, I think that was a good analogy to what we were the first few yeah. months. But uh, we we landed a few anchor accounts and and grew and and um, our, our business. Uh, we tried some business models. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. And um, over the time, we've grown to uh, where we are today. The rest is history. Yeah, well, it's, it's a history still being. <laughs> it's still in the making. So <coughs> when you guys uh, started out sitting around the table and brainstorming, what was your initial mission statement? What were your intentions to do with this company? Well, one of the key elements of of starting this company, we didn't want to be just like every other uh, engineering firm, every other design firm. Um, both of us had had experiences where um, we'd seen design firms do great job, a great job at designing a product, and then they would hand it off to another entity to do the engineering or, or the manufacturing, and, and things would get lost in translation. At the end of the day, there were a lot of lost uh, efficiencies there. And likewise, we've seen engineering uh, teams attack um, programs where they altered the design intent. And there wasn't a lot of um, cohesion between the different disciplines. So even early on, even when we just offered design and engineering, one of our goals was to offer them in a very um, holistic way, in a very cohesive way, so that from... From day one of, of talking to a client, we were considering not just how to design the product, but how to develop the product, how to get the product um, launched. So I would say one of our key goals was to be a more holistic, um, uh, to have a more holistic view of product development instead of just looking at one discipline or another, really providing more complete service to get to help more value to them. Yeah, yeah. To, to provide more value, to really help our clients build a product business, not simply to be a job shop that does design or engineering or prototyping or any one element uh, of the process. Prior to that, had you uh, or either of you, have you had any ideas of your own that you had pursued in inventions or any kind of products? Um, I had dabbled in some things in graduate school, but nothing that I um, – had pushed to market. Yeah. So how old were you at that time? <coughs> I would have been I would have been around 27 at the time we started the company. Oh, young then. Oh, about my age. Well, I'm 25, but you learned a lot then in the last 15 years. Well, I, I took five years to get my uh, engineering degree. Then I took a year off between that and graduate school and then another uh, another couple of years to, uh, to work through graduate school. Uh, basically, uh, I decided to stay at Georgia Tech until I met my wife, and then I decided it was time to go. <laughs> exactly. So once you guys got started, it sounded like you guys uh, kind of built it up very fast. What strategies did you take to build your company? And then once you did start to get bigger, uh, how did you guys deal with that growth? Because sometimes it's hard to go from small to big and mm -hmm. struggles with it. Yeah, I would say you know, early on in the first year or two, 
Um, it was just a few of us. We, we did add some other employees and some other partners. Um, but the first two, three, four years, three years, I guess, uh, we were a company of designers and engineers, uh, people that were, um, we were running the company, but we were also uh, doing the, the, the work. Um, and, and the challenge that created, and, and one of the things to be cautious of in, in any business is that meant that when we were really busy, when we had a lot of good projects, then we weren't out selling new projects. So we would do yeah. those projects, then we'd run out of work, and then, uh-oh, well, well, we better go make a lot of phone calls and sell some other projects. So it was a very up and down kind of cycle. So we'd get busy, then we'd run out of stuff to do, then we'd get busy again, run out of stuff to do. So about the three-year mark, we made a very fundamental and important decision, which helped us grow from a really small shop into a much bigger organization. That was that we invested in a full-time sales uh, staff. Started with just one person. We, we actually found a, a, a really great sales guy that we, we essentially brought out of retirement to work with us. And um, that helped add a lot of stability to the company so yeah. that we were no longer uh, stuck in up and down cycles based on how much work we had to do. But we could we could actually have a consistent sales effort. And you could focus on what you wanted to do and let the other people go do the sales part. Right, exactly. So... Uh, I guess, do you know how many products have you guys developed over this time span? Uh, I don't have an exact number. Um, I was looking at this the other day. We've worked with several hundred different clients. Uh, some of those are uh, very large companies that, that, that you would have heard of, like, like Coca-Cola, Black & Decker, um, uh, Playtex, um, Craftsman, and a variety yeah. of others. Um, but then a lot of those clients are certainly startup companies, uh, a few inventors. Uh, we, we, tend to, we tend to only want to work with, with companies that have a business plan and, and, and a, you know, a reasonable chance of success. Um, we get a lot of phone calls from people that just have ideas, and, and that's, yeah, that's, that's, not really, that's not really a business model that works. They get a rude awakening once they come in and see the reality of what it takes to actually take a product to market and how much it costs even. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But in 14 years, I'd say we, we've probably done well over a thousand projects. That wow. doesn't necessarily mean all those have um, have launched into the market. Oftentimes, the best thing we do for a client is help them reach an early no, uh, an early no go in a in a product development program, so that they can move on to another. Uh, Fail idea. fast. I, exactly. The last thing I want to do is is uh, basically spend a lot of my clients' resources on a program that doesn't have a future. So. What we do, uh, obviously we do design, engineering, science, um, manufacturing. We do those things, but we also play a very strong cons consulting role in the sense that uh, if, if something is just not going to pan out technology-wise or it's not going to hit the client's price points, this, that, and the other, our job is to inform the client of that as early as we can so that they can make a decision about either changing their business model or moving on to something else. With all the products you worked with over the years, what would you consider your toughest product, the hardest project you've worked on, and why was it difficult? The most, um, the most technically challenging program, the toughest program, was a uh, training hand grenade. Now, that, that sounds like, well, it's just something that explodes. Why is that hard? Um, I actually saw that out, outside in the, the room. Is that it? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's in our lobby. Uh, don't worry, the, the one out there is not, uh, not active. It's not going to blow um, up. But, but it turns out that, it, that a, sa you know, a safe hand grenade is a lot more difficult to create than a dangerous one, um, especially uh, if you're trying to create a hand grenade that simulates um, a real hand grenade for live fire training but is non-lethal. Th there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of engineering challenges that go into that, a lot of science challenges and, 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 and other challenges that went into that. That was probably our most challenging uh, program overall. Uh, at the end of the day, it was a um, what? A what came out was it? Was it paint? Bought BBs or what? It, it works a lot like uh, the airbag in your car. So, ah, okay. Uh, it, it has a detonator that's very not too not too dissimilar from an airbag detonator. It creates a cloud of something a lot like talcum powder. So uh, yeah, it simulates. Um, uh, 
you know, a cloud of smoke, but there's also, it has actual gunpowder in it. It does create a very loud bang. It creates a flash. But but one of the challenging parts is it's reusable. So they actually. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, that, that's, you know, if, if we didn't have to be re- reusable, it probably would have been a much easier program. Yeah. But they collect these off the uh, training field. They, s- they send them back to the factory and they repack them. And they, I think they have a lifespan of about 20 uses before it uh, cycles out of service. That's pretty good. What, uh, so uh, out of all the products, and you said that was your toughest one, what would be the one you're most proud of? Because I'm sure there's some that you've worked a long time on and, <coughs> I mean, really can take pride into it. Yeah. Now, there are a lot that, w- that, I'm, that we're proud of. Uh, me, personally, when you ask that question, um, I gravitated toward a project we did for the Craftsman brand uh, several years ago. It was a line of um, battery-powered uh, garden tools. Uh, it's... it's um, a totally interchangeable system. So you have one battery pack, one uh, control handle that's got all the safety features in it. It's got all the electronic safeties, the mechanical safeties. And then onto that, you attach a, a hedge trimmer, a, um, a line trimmer, a blower, or a pole saw. And uh, that, that's one I'm particularly proud of. We, we developed a lot of um, innovations in that program uh, from the standpoint of improving user ergonomics from the standpoint of making it easier to do a variety of, um, of uh, tasks around the yard. Uh, one of the things I think is really cool about it is a lot of the stuff we created, uh, it was, it was uh, popular enough that other companies have, have copied it and not did That's it. awesome. Uh, so that, that, that's, that's always a nice thing to see in a way. Um, and then I was personally very involved in that particular program. We were yeah. a, a bit smaller company then. I was doing a bit less management and a lot more hands-on activity. So, uh, you know, I look at those parts today, and I, I remember um, being involved in developing that particular CAD model or that particular design or, or you know, that, that, that curve there, the reason that's comfortable in the person's hand, that, that's, that's my work. So that's probably cool, too, when you see it in the store and say, I created that. Yeah, yeah. So, so me personally, I have a lot of pride in that. But um, That's awesome. We, we've done a lot of things that I'm quite proud of. How long did it take to develop that certain product? That Craftsman line. Is that, um, that was pretty complex, it looked. I mean. Yeah, it's pretty complex. I mean, there's a lot of mechanical systems, certainly a lot of design that went into it, a lot of uh, ergonomic issues to work out, a lot of safety features. Uh, we also had a lot of uh, regulatory issues with that. There are certain um, uh, requirements that go into making an electric uh, saw or an electric hedge trimmer. Um, start to finish, blank sheet of paper to uh, factory first shots was about 18 months on that particular program. That's that's pretty good time. It's different when you have a lot more money back and behind it. But, mm-hmm. I mean, on average, what what is average? I always say three to five years for product development, but uh, depending on the product, I know. Sure. But yeah, it depends very heavily on the product uh, and how much um, how much regulatory and other things you have to go through. I mean, for a new medical technology, you could be looking at decades uh, yeah. to develop a product. For something that's really simple. Um, you know, if I were making a new dog leash, I could probably get that in six months yeah. on the market. Um, just It just sort of depends. Depends on the uh, situation. Yeah, here at Slingshot, our programs, they can be a month or two long. They can be a, a year or two long. It just sort of depends on, on are we developing new technologies? Are we repackaging technologies? Are we are we just um, changing the design yeah. for, for the next model? Obviously, I mean, product <coughs> development is very difficult and you're going across waters that have never been I mean nobody's went across some steps you're taking past nobody's taken before and it's very hard you're going blind into something uh what over product development over the years what are the biggest struggles you have faced in product development mm-hmm. or in manufacturing with the whole process what are the biggest things you guys have seen you and your team well like you said it's it's um in a sense, everything we do, we're doing it for the first time anybody's done it. Yeah. Um, sometimes that's a relatively small thing. It might be the first time anybody's put that particular uh, kind of light on that particular product. That's that's a pretty easy one. But but usually it's a little bit more. Um, usually there's a little bit more to that. So sometimes people ask me, well, why why can't you just um, uh, 
predict exactly how it's going to go. Well, every <laughs> program, every program has your psychic, has challenges. right? Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's uh, one of our um, head engineers here. He likes to say something along the lines of, um, "It's not if something's going to go wrong in product development; it's when something's going to go wrong in product." Sounds development. like Don. Yeah, I think it is. Don. <laughs> yeah, you know Don. Yeah, um, it it's always you can plan on taking longer and things. You, if you go in knowing a lot of things are going to go wrong, you won't be disappointed because right. if it goes all right, that, that hardly ever happens. Yeah, and, and it's it's one of those things. It's not about um, things not going wrong. It's about having a process to work through challenges as they come up. Um, that, that's, that's one of the keys to success. You know, we've certainly uh, – Bigger companies, companies that have made products before, they understand that. Sometimes when we, we're working with startups, uh, um, that can be a bit more challenging. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, they kind of look at this sort of like, you know, if we were painting a house or, 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 or something that, that is pretty much the same every time. Well, why didn't you know this was going to happen? Well, nobody could know it was going to happen. Yeah. And nobody could predict that, uh, that, that um, this particular new – particular new technology wouldn't work with, with this particular material we had to it's trial and error it. you got to experiment and see what's going to work i mean to some extent i mean i, w- I would call it educated trial and error yeah but, uh, there are always unknowns in a product development program um if anybody tells you they're going to run your program and it's going to be exactly perfect every time then i'd yeah i'd look for someone else because <laughs> that probably means they haven't done a lot of they it. have no idea what's going to happen what uh out of all the people that come in here, and I'm sure you see all ranges, big companies, and then people that just have an idea wrote on a napkin, what are the biggest struggles you see your customers have, your clients coming in with their idea? What do they struggle with, their roadblocks? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes decision-making can be a problem. This is often for uh, larger companies. Decision-making can be a problem. Um, Sometimes companies suffer from what I would call uh, analysis paralysis. So they'll spend a lot of time trying to get to a perfect product, and in the meantime, they're missing their launch dates. So yeah, you know, they could get a product to the market, um, what I would call an early viable product or a minimum viable product. It meets all their marketing goals. It meets all their business goals. It may not be perfect, but they can start generating revenue there. They build market share. There are people out there, however, who, who fall into the trap of, of discovering things in development where, oh, we can just add this feature and we can just add that feature. And by the time you do all that, you're, you're a year late and you've missed market share. Maybe someone else has even come out with another product. My advice is, is develop your, your product definition and stick to that as best you can. All the improvements you want to add table those for generation two because you need you need generation two anyway i mean you, yeah. you need to launch your product and somebody if it's successful somebody's going to knock it off it may as well be you you should be the one competing with your own product in another year or two or whatever the development cycle in your industry is what's your viewpoint you're talking about somebody knocking your product off uh what is your take on forgetting a patent or trademark do you think somebody wants to have the idea they should get it right away or should they wait until they have a prototype or how do you feel about intellectual um, property patents are expensive they are and it de- <laughs> they're very expensive i know uh i would say that that depends a lot on your resources and your market um and how tight your patent can be i, I mean there's we've run into situations where people have come to us they've already invested in a patent and we look at the patent, and they, they think it's, you know, that they, they think they're covered. And, yes, they may be covered for one very specific way to do what they're trying yep. to, to do. But there's so many ways around it that the patent is, is pretty much worthless. Um, then there are other situations where um, patents make a lot of sense, especially if it's something that is uh, maybe a licensing really deal. Well, there's potentially licensing deals, but if it really is the best way to do something, there's not a lot of ways around it. A patent might yeah. make sense. 
oftentimes I, I see inventors especially, they'll spend a lot of their money on patents and they end up with a patent that they can frame on the wall and then they never have a product. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, they don't have any money left or, or the patent uh, really doesn't reflect what they need to protect. And I've seen people and companies be very successful and never patent their product at all. Um, I'm not a attorney, so I can't give legal advice, but I, I do know that pretty much everything can be patented. It's just how how protective that patent is that matters. Because they uh, could do little changes in it. Another company can come in and have a small little change and get around your patent. Mm -hmm. But what I always said is I'd be afraid if a big company were to come in and actually steal your idea, which usually they come once you're making a lot of money, mm -hmm. how do you fight that company anyways? Because they'll keep you in court. Yeah, they, They've probably got bigger lawyers. than They you. have a lot bigger pockets. Mm -hmm. But... Well, I, I can at least say I, I've uh, played that card for the patent, so <laughs> learn the experience. So let's get into manufacturing. Uh, this is kind of a big issue, especially now with companies for going overseas, keeping it domestic. First off, if somebody is getting the process of developing a product, how do they know to find the right manufacturer for their product? And uh, how do they know, what questions do they ask to know if they're reputable or just know if they're the good match for them and their product? Mm -hmm. um, th there's a lot to that question. Um, one thing is, is I would certainly want to know other products that they have produced. I'd, I'd want samples of those. I'd want to see if there's something you can draw an analogy to your product. I yep. mean, if, you, if you're making a plastic widget and they're sending you samples of metal boxes, you, you know that that's probably not a good sign. Yeah. Um, I'd want to make sure that their capabilities in terms of sophistication align with what you're doing. I mean, if you're, if you're um, making a high-tech medical device that uses a very specific grade of plastic and, and that they've never heard of, that, that might be problematic. Um, in terms of domestic versus um, offshore, uh, unless you're, you're, you want to go domestic for patriotic reasons, I would say don't worry so much about domestic versus offshore. You need to find the best match uh, for, uh, for yep. what you're trying to do. At the end of the day, there's certain items that, that just don't make sense to produce in the United States. And there's certain items that just don't make sense to, make, to produce in, in Asia or anywhere else. Uh, there are a lot of things that go into it. If you're producing an item that... that um, can't nest, can't ship well, then, then you're going to be paying a lot of money to ship that on a boat. So that's probably something you'd want to do domestically. If you're um, producing something that needs a lot of uh, hand-holding, it's, it's important that you be able to be close to that, uh, that particular producer or that you have someone that's going to yeah. manage that relationship for you. Our experience is that um, with, with, with well, with Asian and offshore manufacturing, having feet on the ground is very important because if you have someone that can uh, go into that factory and manage quality control, there's a, again, remember, there's always something that's going to go wrong. Yeah. So the color might not be right. Maybe the first shots come off of the tool and the color's not right. It's, it's, there's some sort of problem, whatever it is. Your quality control guy going and sitting in the lobby of that factory gets the problem resolved. The last thing that a factory wants is your quality control guy to be there. So they're going to prioritize your problem. They're going to get it resolved, and, and, and you're going to get back on track. But if the factory knows you're 25 hours away, they're probably not going to put you at the top of their list. Who goes to the top of their list are the people that, that can be there that day exactly, and, and sort of sit on them until the problem gets resolved. What do you see in the future? Of, I've heard many different things from multiple manufacturers and people some believe that manufacturing is going to continue or slowly implement to the U.S. versus uh, overseas. And with the labor laws and everything going on, what are your views and what do you think will happen in the next five to ten years with that? I think over time it will swing back and forth. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think, you know, again, I think there's certain things that are never going to make sense to make here yep. uh, in the U.S., um, something that, that 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 doesn't have a whole lot of intrinsic value to it probably yeah. doesn't make sense to make here in the u.s i think things that uh have higher margin capabilities or potential um 
will make sense here because the U.S., the labor costs in the U.S. and the, the, um, the, the, uh, the, the level of, of expertise of, of, of the factories in the U.S. just doesn't lend itself to making really simple widgets. And why would they want to, frankly? Yeah. Uh, I would think that in the U.S. we'd want to gear more of our manufacturing toward higher value items. Um, it's almost like some of the simple widgets or simple products being made offshore, I look at those as almost a raw material. And we have a client that they produce a lot of their um, components offshore, then they do the final assembly and the real value add happens in their factory here in, here in, um, in the United States. And that, that's, that's a really good setup for them. They don't need to worry about making all these little plastic plates and shelves and these yeah. other things that go into their product. But they're, they're, they're investing appropriately here on the assembly and the, the final bit of manufacturing and really producing their high-tech components. It really comes down to the kind of product you have versus a simple or if you're going to have something more high-tech, obviously overseas can get it done a lot cheaper for labor hours. Sure. And there's, there are always exceptions to that. I mean, there's certainly... Uh, very high-quality manufacturers here that can produce very simple things and do it cost-effectively. And there's certainly producers offshore that can produce very sophisticated things as well. So I want to go into crowdfunding. Crowdfunding is taking a big turn. It's really changing how things are developed. It's changing inventors. It's allowing people to enter the market without spending, well, if any, money. How do you feel about crowdfunding and how is it changing the process of product development? I think there's, um, I think there could be clouds brewing with with crowdfunding, and and here here's the thing. I, I think crowdfunding is a fantastic tool for people who have the sophistication to understand the costs uh, and challenges involved with producing a product. However. I think it's also dangerous because there are a lot of people who just have ideas that build a crowdfunding campaign without necessarily a full understanding of, of what it's going to take to get that product to market. So I agree. They, they get super excited. Oh, I raised $200,000 to produce this product. And then they start to realize, but it's going to cost me $300,000 to get it on the market. So now they've got egg on their face. I don't really know the legal implications of that. Plus, they've got thousands of people that donated that are either never going to get anything out of it, never going to get their money back. Exactly. And, and I think there's a potential that could give a black eye to the whole industry. So, so um, I agree with you because there's some projects that they, I mean, people can say it's going to be a certain time six months from now. Mm -hmm. And I look at most of them and I know that you times that, that amount by two at least. Yeah. And the cost for it is just crazy and th I don't think they realize that the total 360 effect on what it is going to cost them to develop that product. Yeah, I mean what crowdfunding has done is it's it's sort of um, in some cases gotten around the need to do any due diligence on what you invest in or back or whatever yeah. you want to call it and, and I, I think it would be a real shame if I don't even want to use the word bad apples because I don't think it's done intentionally. I think it's just done out of, out of a lack of knowledge. It'd be a shame to let the bad apples ruin the whole concept for, yeah. uh, for the people who it works for. I kind of think of it, you know, think about, well, you're too young to remember when email first uh, came yeah. about. But, I mean, email was so awesome until someone invented spam, right? Exactly. And crowdfunding could kind of be the same way. It's, it's awesome, but now it's sort of – is it trending towards spam? Is it trending yeah. toward where there's just going to be a lot of junk out there? And, and if it gets to that point, I think it's going to be difficult for the average backer um, to, to wade through all that to find the right things to back and, 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 and invest in. Uh, now, your tech-savvy people, sure, they, they'll do it. You know, People that are really into the pebble or whatever, they're, they're, they're going to do that. But um, those are already the ones that are well known. It's 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 the real magic of crowdfunding is the the unknowns that can uh, break through with it. And I just fear that might get lost in the noise over time. And you know there is some. It's sad that there's some people out there that do frauds where That's they right. actually say they're going to build a product and actually they have no intentions. They do a good campaign, 
they get the money and they run. And they recently had changed. Maybe that was a year ago. They changed the laws and crowdfunding because there is a fine line with everything. But sure. how I feel about it is it allows people, younger people with no money to <coughs> be more creative and in innovative. But I think they do need to have some kind of consultation on how much it is going to cost moving forward. Because mm -hmm. if they knew the total effect of what it was going to be, then I think they'd raise their goal a little higher. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, um, uh, it takes a lot more. It takes a lot more business um, business plan development than I think a lot of them are are doing. Agree. What uh, What have you over the years? Have you personally developed any of your own products? Uh, we have. I have not uh, launched anything into the market. Uh, we at Slingshot have. Um, uh, launched a couple of initiatives in the last in the last few years to, to start doing that. Um, we have we actually have one that's on the market. Uh, you can buy it on on Amazon. I think it's a video game accessory called uh, Game Scope. Um, basically, not one I developed, but one uh, we developed with a partner, um, and it has something to do with. Uh, I guess some of the, the, the first-person shooter games that helps yep. with aiming. Uh, okay. For, for it's been a while since I've played them, but I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I haven't played them in a while either, not, not since I had kids. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an accessory for video games. But uh, that, that's our first one. It's a real uh, – That's awesome. It's sort of a pilot program for us. Um, yeah. But we have a number of other things in the work as well. But you guys are looking into doing more of your own kind of products as well, though. We're looking into doing more of that. We're also looking into developing more um, intellectual property internally uh, for the purposes of licensing to, uh, to other companies. So tell me, what are your views on licensing versus manufacturing? How difficult is it to get a licensing deal with a company? Uh, and I guess what would be the pros and cons versus manufacturing and licensing? Well, uh, you know, from my perspective, you know, I know how to get stuff manufactured. That, that's not the challenge. Yeah. You, you know, there, there's certainly a, um, a, a, a financial challenge there. It costs money yeah. to, to manufacture something. But what I see the real benefit um, of licensing as is that you're licensing to a company that already has distribution. Um, I think that's one of the hardest things to build. I think it's one of the things that um, uh, people underestimate in terms of the, the value of that. But uh, if you have an idea or a product and you want to go and build a company and manufacture it and you fill a warehouse full of it, how do you sell it? Uh, yep. You can build a sales force. You can go around and talk to every retailer. That, that's a very steep um, mountain to climb. But you take that same idea, you, you, you prototype it, you develop it to a presentation level, you, you find a company that's already in that space, that already has shelf space at, um, at all the drugstores or Kroger's or Walmarts of the world, and uh, you, you license it to them, you have instant distribution. Yeah, you don't own 100%, maybe you own 5%, maybe you own 3%, maybe you own 8%, depending on what the product is. But that's real ownership. It's not a. It's not a hundred percent of nothing or a hundred percent of a, a big debt. It's it's. You just collect checks. Yeah, it's three to eight percent of something that um, that has actual value. W what is the highest uh, royalty you've seen? I know they say anywhere from three to seven percent usually, but. I would say it can go north of ten percent. Yeah, it's a, if which it's is a, really good. <laughs> yeah, if it's a high margin industry, if it's something very a very valuable innovation, something maybe in the medical space or uh, or something like that, it could it could go north of ten percent. Uh, on the other hand, if it's it can go down to one percent in yeah. certain industries too. It just sort of depends on what it is. But um, you know, like with anything else, you have to do a business analysis of that particular. Exactly. Um, space so over the last 15 years <coughs> well 20 if you're counting all your experience with developing products and uh, being an engineer what are the biggest lessons you have learned while working in product development mm -hmm. well number one um, success uh, depends on failure uh, you have to fail in order to, to learn to succeed 
Um, now, some people, they fail and then they give up. But uh, uh, I actually think failure is part of the innovation process, and, and especially if you approach it that way. We generate a lot of prototypes. We generate a lot of really rough, crude, uh, kind of like your spray-painted uh, test tube prototype yeah. from, your, from your project. We create a lot of that because, you know, for every every dollar I spend on that, buy, buying stuff at Home Depot or, or whatever and, and rigging it together, I learn a lot more off of those dollars than I do at the end of the program where I'm making a high-fidelity prototype that looks like and works like the real thing. You know, I may, you know, may make a prototype that costs $5,000 at the end of a, pro of a program. By that point, I better not be learning much. I, I better already pretty well know what I need to know. So early on, I may make a $20 prototype, and I'm going to learn a lot from it. Um, so, so prototyping, it's, it's kind of like build it, break it, fix it. You know, some yeah. people call that a failure cycle. You, know, you build it, break it, fix it. So you fail over and over again, and that's part of, uh, part of the refinement process. So, so one of the things to learn is don't be afraid to, to try something and fail. Don't, don't get it perfect before you try it. Um, the other thing is don't be afraid to abandon an idea. I mean, if it's just not going anywhere, figure that out quick and move on. Um, yeah, I've seen a lot of people to get so obsessed with an idea, and they, they, you know, sadly, I've seen people put their life savings into stuff. Yep. And frankly, they should have probably stopped after the first year or so and, and gone on to their next idea. It's really, um, it's almost, I don't want to use the phrase numbers game because it's not quite like that, but. Um, almost got to look at like stock, <laughs> Yeah. your I time mean, frame and percentage, and if it's worth your time. My advice to innovators and inventors is that uh, always imagine that your next idea is going to be better than the current one you're working on. If you look at it from that perspective, you don't place quite as much value in what you're doing right now and you're willing to move on. That's good. That's good. Yeah, when, when you talked about <coughs> failure stories, I heard one the other day from a, a guy that worked with Walmart and taking products to market, and he saw a specific situation where the guy had – took a lot of loan on his house. He invested everything. He got into Walmart and a, a lot of stores, but it never went off the shelves. Right. And he got the back order and well, it bankrupt him. And right. see, the thing is you can make the product, but you got to sell it too. I always think 90% marketing, 10% product, because you got to be able to show people what your new product is and train the market, which is tough. Yeah, I mean, even getting on the shelf at Walmart. Now, a lot of times, you know, Walmart has so many stores, and if your packaging is good, that, that, that might be all the marketing you need. But you got to be ready to, if you really want it to grow, you got to be ready to back that up with exactly. some marketing efforts. Well, let's go. I want to learn a little more about you. What I always talk about mentors and how we need to surround ourselves with uh, a lot of smart people in different areas. How have mentors helped you, and how have they had an impact on your life and your success over the years. And who are your mentors? Sure. Well, well, my mentors are sort of personal mentors. Um, what what I've uh, a few things I've learned from my mentors is is to understand uh, wh what I am and what I'm not. I have certain personal strengths. I have certain personal weaknesses. I think that's that's one of the really key things to understand. Um, Myself, yeah, I learned a long time ago. One of my mentors helped me realize this. You know, I'm, a, I'm great at big picture stuff. I'm great at big idea stuff. I'm great at putting the idea and the vision together. But I'm not so great at the little details. Uh, so, so one of the things that I learned from that process is to surround myself with people that are great at details. Yeah. Um, so, so I have a, a, a number of mentors. Uh, uh, I, I won't mention their full names, but a gentleman named Rob has been a mentor to me in terms of uh, understanding the business world, understanding uh, ways to look at business, understanding ways to um, uh, to take a very objective view rather than a subjective personal view of how our business runs, actually taking that step back and asking questions about, you know, is the business model right? Is is everybody uh, on the bus in the right seat, if you will, yeah. if you think of the business as a bus? Um, my my father-in-law was a great mentor to me. Uh, he uh, 
he helped me understand the perspective of of a broader perspective of, of life uh, you're not just don't just focus on the day-to-day but focus uh, much more broadly than that and, and then an, a fellow um, uh, business owner named Steve has been a mentor to me as well and he's taught me um, about persistence and about uh, uh, you know, th- there's different ways to achieve success there so, is yeah I know those are all kind of shallow answers but no uh, but that's true I mean the importance is you got to surround yourself with people that can mentor you because if you try to do things and learn on your own you're going to make a lot of mistakes and it's going to take a lot longer yeah and you really need to find people that you want to be like and learn from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, it's not that you know, I have any huge pearls of wisdom from these mentors. It's really more um, I've learned by watching their examples. You yeah, know, that, that's been key. Exactly. Over years of business, business, you have a lot of ups and downs. Tell me an instance when you had one of the lowest points in your business and how did you overcome that obstacle and come out ahead? Well, the, the recession of uh, 09, 08, 09, 010, that, that period, um, uh, it hit our business pretty hard, just like it hit a lot of businesses. Uh, we, had, uh, we went through a situation where prior to that, we had a number of very big programs with, with very large clients and, and a few you know, smaller clients as well. But then the recession hit and all the big clients stopped uh, uh, or at least pulled back their budget significantly. So our, um, our, our business changed dramatically. Uh, to, to get through that, we, we had to um, uh, look at reducing our, our team a little bit. We, we'd probably grown a little bit bigger than we needed to. Um, so there were a few people that were ready to move on to other things anyway. So we, we sort of let that, that happen um, and, and made some other changes. Uh, and then we refocused um, some of what we were doing that that's actually that period um, was one of the things that helped encourage us to get deeper into manufacturing yeah. so we, we diversified ourselves at that time uh, and that really helped us uh, uh, get through the, the recession and, and come out on the other side uh, uh, thriving so um, as long as you get through the bad times you can really thrive in the, the yeah good. yeah we, we had to, to do a lot more what I call um, or, or a lot more small, small, smaller programs at that time. We had yeah. to focus our marketing on some smaller programs, um, but uh, you know, the the economy is always in flux. Uh, the world is always changing. Uh, crises always, always are going to happen. You cannot predict the future. Yeah, exactly. So you just have to adapt. I think that uh, um, maybe some of the companies that that didn't survive uh, that period, they they just didn't adapt. Okay. Uh, we were fortunate that we were able to. So last two questions uh, I always ask everybody <coughs> on the show. The first one is, and I'm always amazed by, uh, what are your three top books that you would suggest to other entrepreneurs that you got the most out of? Mm-hmm. Um, one book that, that I enjoyed reading was a book called Tipping Point by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, that's a fairly popular one. I think a lot of people have, have read it. Um, another one that's maybe a little bit less known is a book by a guy named Doug Hall. It's called Jumpstart Your Business Brain. It's it's not a it's a it's, it's a fairly simple book, fairly yeah. easy read, but it, but it um, makes some points very clearly. And I think it, it's it's one of those books that uh, y- you read it and it's like oh that is simple. I should just think of it that way. And that that's. Uh, it's a book about about how to market, how to um, how to think about your business, not so much from the standpoint of of yourself, but from your uh, your your target market. So I think that, that that's a, a book I'd recommend. And the one I've been reading recently, since I've been getting into this licensing uh, uh, initiative, is a book called One Simple Idea by a gentleman named uh, Stephen King. And okay, I've enjoyed reading that book. I, I'd recommend that to, to entrepreneurs out there as well, especially anyone that has um, has an interest in uh, licensing products. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, you'd like it. Yeah. Okay. The last question I ask everybody on the show, I'm gonna tweak it a little bit for you. I always say, what are your top three successful tips for other young entrepreneurs out there? Okay. But what are your top three tips for? inventors out there people that have an idea and want to go forward with it what are your tips to them for success 
Number one, don't fixate on one idea. Um, whatever idea you have, whatever your invention is, it's not as probably not as great as you think, and you'll probably have a better idea uh, next time. Um, you know, certainly pursue it, chase it, but don't be so obsessed with it that it's a make or break for you. Don't don't sell grandma's ring and, and mortgage your house to, to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, second thing, uh, like I mentioned before, you know, break it, fix it, repeat. Um, it's iterative. Uh, don't be afraid of failure. Uh, if, if your prototype turns out right the first time, every time, you're not doing it right and you're not prototyping enough. Um, and the third thing is pursue your passion. You know, don't pursue success or money. Uh, if you're inventing things or you're trying to build a product um, to get rich, uh, I, chances are less likely that you're ever going to get there. I think you need to build a product because you have passion for it, whatever the product is, and then, then success will come. Um, so, so those are my three things. Good, good stuff, good stuff. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, Noah. Oh, uh, my pleasure. What about uh, if somebody out there is looking to take their product to the next level, where can they contact you guys to get help? What's your website and where can they go? Uh, well, well my, our company is Slingshot Product Development Group. Uh, you can certainly just do a Google search on that. Uh, the website is uh, slingshotpdg.com. And um, we're, we're outside Atlanta. We're pretty easy to find. Uh, I think Atlanta is a, uh, uh, a plane flight, one plane flight from just about everywhere. So, um, or a 16-hour drive from or, Des Moines, if you're or, me. <laughs> or a 16-hour drive from Des Moines. Uh, yeah. So, so I, don't, I can't recommend that, but certainly. Uh, um, it's worth the travel. Pretty cool site you got down here. A lot of awesome products you guys have taken to market, and it's well, thank you. very interesting to me as well. So, well, thank you, Noah. And, uh well, guys, it's the end of our show. You guys know what to do. Go out there, create something great, and become unforgettable. I'm Brandon Adams. Have a great day, everybody.